So last uh, chapter, we learned about Paul, and he's the one that wrote the letter to the churches in Galatia. We learned through the lesson that the main reason that he wrote the letter was because the gospel was being perverted by some of the church leaders. Um, One author that I was reading wrote, Ever since Paul's time, the enemies of grace have been trying to add something to the simple gospel of the grace of God. And, you know, the gospel is simple, and man tries to complicate it by adding all of these things that you need to do. Um, You know, so many of the world religions um, are religions of works. Christianity is a religion of grace. Well, the theme verse for the entire book of Galatians is chapter 5, verse 1. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Christ has set you free from the law. He set you free from condemnation. We find that in Romans 8, 1 where it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free not to sin or to be held uh, captive or under slavery's uh, sin's slavery. We are free from our old habits if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, and our past mistakes are gone. We are free. This train of thought... um, from Paul runs all through Galatians, and it starts in one of our verses from last week, chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. He wrote, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel. One of the main things they were doing was they were saying that you had to be um, follow the law, but new believers would have to be um, circumcised. And we find here in chapter 2 that when uh, Paul went up to Jerusalem this time, this 14 years later, he took Barnabas and Titus, which you kind of had to look up in, in your study, But there's a good reason why he might have taken Titus, whether he did it on purpose or uh, it was, you know, just God's will. We don't know if the 14 years later when he's talking about is when the actual Jerusalem council met and decided this point. But I was um, in both the commentaries that I read, we were told to look at... um, Acts 15. And so I'm going to read from Acts 15 what happened at the Jerusalem Council, which could have very possibly be been at this 15-year point in Paul's writing, or 14-year point. So it says, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question, this perverting the the gospel. 
The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. It goes on to say in, um, I can't read this, verse 5, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And then in 8 it says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. The whole assembly then became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James. Now, James, we know, is the brother of half brother of Jesus. He was a Jewish Jew. I mean, very legalistic. So, I'm. It's 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 cool that it's James that stands up and says, "Brothers, listen to me." Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. And then James goes on to say, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make difficult for the Gentiles who are returning to God. Now, what I find is so so important about this is that Titus truly must have, you know, shown that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, the the Jerusalem Council, where we now find all of them, um, the the reason they were, um, the reason I think it's so cool that, I'm sorry, that James stood up and said this is because he was one of the ones that might have been leaning towards making them, you know, follow some of the laws. Um, I don't know why I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the other thing that's so interesting to me is that um, the fact that Paul is is um, bringing Titus is because t- he's he's showing that the Gentiles did receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't have to be circumcised. So what I wanted to talk about for today's lesson is three C's, consulting, confronting, and Christ. So consulting, this council at Jerusalem, where we now find Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, um, where he goes to confront the issue at hand, he wants to, and he, but he also wants to make sure that he's on the right track of preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason I find it kind of interesting that he's going to ask them, you know, am I doing this right? Because when I first became a believer, I really didn't like Paul. Um, he seemed to write in riddles, which went way over my head. But I truly misjudged him, thinking he was kind of a braggart and boasted of himself. Um, In Philippians 3, 4, and 6, Paul writes, If someone 
else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh. And now this is how I thought he was saying it. If someone else thinks they have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, for as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So you can see why I kind of thought he was bragging, but now I see him humbling himself before the church leaders, asking them if he was teaching the right gospel. Um, verse 2 says that he feared that he was running the race in vain. I don't think he's afraid, like he's, you know, shaking in his boots or afraid he's going to get caught telling the, an untruth. I think he's just, con you know, consulting, checking himself against other believers, that he just wants to make sure of what he's teaching is correct. And we need to make sure of what we're taught. I hope that you guys are all like Bereans, who we read about in Acts 17, 11. It says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and then examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Not only do we need to examine what we hear, but like Paul, we need to consult the Bible about what we believe and teach. A good question to ask someone if they maybe have a belief that's, that doesn't sound right is just to ask them, can you show me where in the Bible it says that? Paul went as a learner, and we need to do the same. I love the fact that I get to work at the church. I work here in the office, and anytime I have a little question or I think something's amiss, I can go into the pastor's office, just pop in, and, and ask them. Another way that we can, can get some counsel is to be in our group. Um, <clears throat> We do our lesson. We we're guided by the Holy Spirit as we listen. As we do our lesson, we share what we've learned through our study. But if someone says something, then we need to make sure it says it in the Bible. And I hope you feel safe enough to ask for and receive counsel from the other ladies in your group. Uh, my husband and I belong to a life group that uh, a Bible study that meets in our home. And my husband recently asked for counsel from the group about something that had really been nagging at him. And I thought this was so cool. I just kind of backed off and, and let the, especially the men talk to him. Not only did they give him their opinion drawing from their own experiences, but they gave him wise counsel right from God's word. Paul humbled himself and asked for counsel. If Paul needed to do that, we too can benefit from consulting with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 3, we read, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Here's where I was getting to before about that um, Titus was, was there at the Jerusalem Council for a reason. Paul um, tells us this. But it was because Titus was evidence of the fact that we are justified and saved by faith, not by works. He did not get circumcised. He must have been a man filled with the Spirit, so much so that the Council of Jerusalem was convinced that his conversion was true. I hope that I am an evidence of a changed life through faith in Christ. What about you?
Paul consulted with the council, and he was given their blessing. Just as Peter was called to the Jews, Paul's call to the Gentiles was confirmed. Now we're going to look at confronting. Um, confronting is not something that very many people like to do, right? <laughs> you can be labeled a troublemaker if you do it too often or if you're too harsh. And um, my kids tend to call me brutal because they, if they ask me a question, I'm going to tell them the truth. And so I can be a little too honest at times. I, I, I'm hoping that I'm softening a bit in my old age. But I do not want to be soft when it comes to the doctrines of Christianity or the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I got to verses um, 11 through like 14 through 16, I was a little confused. But I love J. Vernon McGee. I wish I could imitate the way he talks because he has that southern accent and I just love him. Um, but I want to read from his commentary. I just There's no way of me summarizing what he said. It just says it so good. But um, I want to tell you kind of what's going on in this scene where Paul confronts Peter about eating um, at the Gentile table. And then when the other believers, the, the Judaizers, come in, then he goes and he won't eat there. So the church in Antioch was largely a Gentile church, although it was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. We will not understand what happened there unless we consider how the early church operated. They had a love feast, which was held in connection with the Lord's Supper. Kind of like maybe the waffles that were served <laughs> before church. Well, when the Gentiles were saved, a problem was raised. In the congregation were Jews who had never eaten anything which had been sacrificed to idols. And the, the Gentile uh, believers had been eating meat that had been first offered to idols. They also ate pork and other animals designated as unclean in the law of Moses. It made no difference to them because they had been reared that way what was going on to be done what was going to be done to keep from offending the jewish christians well in antioch two tables were established one was a kosher table the other was a gentile table <clears throat> paul ate at the gentile table although he was a jew he ate with the gentiles because he taught that whatever you whether you eat meat or you don't eat meat makes no difference meat will not commend you to God. When Simon Peter came to visit Paul in Antioch, it was a new experience for him because although converted, he had never eaten anything unclean. So Peter had been a believer for some time when he came to visit Paul in Antioch, but he had still followed the Jewish eating pattern. When Peter came to the church, he found there a Gentile table and a kosher table. So McGee says, now this is probably what happened. When the time came to eat, Simon Peter went over to the kosher table while Paul went over to the Gentile table. Peter noticed that there was pork roast on the Gentile table. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> After dinner, Peter joined Paul, and they went outside for a little walk. Peter said, I noticed you ate at the Gentile table. Yes, Paul said, and I noticed that you ate pork tonight. Is it good? <laughs> I never have tasted it. Yes, Paul said, it's delicious. Then Peter said, do you think it would be all right if I ate over there? 
And Paul said, well, it is my understanding that we are going to have some nice pork chops in the morning for breakfast. Why don't you try it? So in the morning when he came to breakfast, he went over to the Gentile table, sat down gingerly, and rather reluctantly took a pork chop. After he had tasted it, he said to Paul, it's delicious, isn't it? Paul said, yes. After all, under grace, you can either eat it or not eat it. It makes no difference. Meat won't commend you to God. So Simon Peter said, I'll be here tonight, and I understand you're having ham tonight. I want to try that. So at dinner time, he starts rushing for the Gentile table. Then he looks over and sees some of the elders from the Jerusalem church who had come to visit also. So Simon Peter went all the way around that kosher table and went over, or the Gentile table and went over to the kosher table and sat down like a little whipped puppy. <laughs> he goes on to say, It was all right for Peter to eat at either table, kosher or Gentile, but after he had been eating at the Gentile table for fear of the brethren from Jerusalem and goes back to the kosher table, he he is saying by his action that the Gentile table is wrong and the kosher table is right. The nature of Paul's rebuke shows, first of all, the inconsistency of law-keeping. If it was right for Simon Peter to live as the Gentile believers lived, why should he desire the Gentiles to live as the Jews? That is what he was saying when he left the Gentile table for the kosher table, if Gentile living under grace, apart from the law, was good enough for Peter, was it bad for the Gentiles himself? If Simon Peter was free to live outside of the law, was it not lawful for the Gentiles to do the same? One of the first things we see here is that Paul confronts Peter face to face, not behind his back. And to me, that's an ouch. <laughs> it's easy to see something, somebody do something and find fault with it and then tell someone else that you've seen that instead of confronting the right person. McGee makes it sound like Peter and Paul were the kind of friends that could confront each other when they were found something wrong. I have a Best friend, Kelly, she is great at lovingly correcting me. I know she loves me and only wants the best for me, and she only wants the best for the Lord. So there have been times when she needed to confront me, and I praise God for her. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a mentor or someone you are discipling? I hope so. What about consistent living? How are you doing there? Are you consistently, consistently living out your faith? Do you act one way at church and another way at home or at work or maybe a party? We can so easily stumble a new believer or even ostracize a non-believer if we are not consistent in living our lives for God. What, what do we hear so often from unbelievers that they say about the church? Oh, they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. We don't want to be labeled as a hypocrite. It's been said the only Bible some will ever read is what they see in you. Peter was being a hypocrite, and he was leading others down the wrong path. We need to lead others to Christ, which is our last C, Christ. Actually, it's Christ versus the law. This is what the whole book, Galatians, is about. 
Paul starts it in chapter 1, continues here in his confrontation with Peter, but especially in verse 16. Paul tells Peter, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ, Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So... Going on to verse 17, this is one of those examples of Paul kind of going over my head. This is what it says. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> I did, as Lynn told us to, to read the, the verses in lots of versions and the Living Bible was a little bit more understandable for me. The Living Bible, verse 17, says, But what if we trust Christ to save us and then find that we are wrong? So they still have that nagging little question about did they need to follow the laws? And that we cannot be saved without being circumcised and obeying all the other Jewish laws. Wouldn't we need to say that faith in Christ ruined us? God forbid that anyone would dare to think such things about our Lord. Paul argues that going back to the law is to deny the grace of God. That's what, that's what our faith is all about. Jesus died to justify us once and for all. The law condemned us, said we had to die. The law kills. It executed me. Therefore, the law could not do for me what Christ has done for me. He not only took my place and died for me, but he was able to give me life. He came back from the dead. McGee says the law arrested, condemned, sentenced, and executed us. That is all the law can do for you. If you want to go the route of the law, you will only get death but it is through faith in Christ Jesus that you have life. And so now Paul says, Through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I suppose if Paul had a Facebook page, he might put for his occupation, Christ. Verse 20 says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How is it that we have been crucified with Christ? It's a hard concept. We were sinners. We were found guilty before God, and our sentence was death, which is complete separation from God. But Jesus was crucified in our place. He was the substitute. So it is as if we were on the cross. Certainly he bore our sin on that fateful day. And now he lives in us. You know, when you say the sinner's prayer, isn't that what you say? Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And he obliges. His Holy Spirit takes up residence. He leads and he guides, affording us the faith to trust in God and his word and his will for our lives. Christ lives in me when I love the unlovely, when I remember the poor, when I take care of my family, or I pray for a friend. 
He lives in me so that I can be bold in my faith, especially as I share with others the truth of the gospel, maybe with a neighbor, a friend, or family member. Everything we do is to be done unto the Lord and for his glory. And it is by his grace that we are saved. We are not bound by the law. We could not be found righteous by it because, as Peter and Paul profess, no one can be justified by observing the law. The last verse in our chapter, verse 21, says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. I like what Warren Wiersbe has to say. Returning to the law nullifies the cross. The law says do. Grace says done. Christ said it is finished. So Wiersbe had six questions that I want to ask you. One, have you been saved by the grace of God? And ladies, if not, you're not promised tomorrow. Please talk to someone today about being saved by God's grace. Number two, are you trying to mix law and grace? Believing you don't deserve God's grace can really be a problem, especially since while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He thinks that you are valuable enough to die for. He loves you enough to save you. I had a neighbor a few years back. She had a uh, mentally handicapped daughter who lived in a group home. And I knew that she was going to um, bring her daughter home for Christmas. So I decided to make it real nice. And I made a nice little plate of cookies and, and breads to take to her. She seemed really kind of taken back and surprised. But, of course, her daughter was elated by the cookies. But later that day, the daughter comes over with a little wrapped Christmas present. And it was a cute cut glass vase that I really still cherish to this day. But it kind of made me sad. I knew it was something that she hadn't, you know, prepared and bought before. It was probably right from her cupboard. And it made me sad to think that she couldn't just receive my gift without reciprocation. I was blessed to give the gift, and I never expected to have receive anything in return. I just liked her as a neighbor, and I wanted to be a loving friend. What must God think when he sent his own son as a gift, our gift of salvation, and then we strive to earn his gift? Third question, are you rejoicing in the fact that you are justified by faith in Christ? Um, when I used to do prison ministry, my ladies were always teaching me things about different words. And one of the words that they said justified means just as if I'd never sinned. And I've heard Lynn say the same thing. God looks upon us through the blood of Jesus and our sins are no more. That's something to rejoice about. Number four, are you walking in the liberty of grace? Remember Paul's theme verse, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's not only freedom to do but it's freedom not to do. We're no longer in bondage to sin. We can enjoy liberty in Christ. Number five, are you willing to defend the truth of the gospel? Will you consult the word when you hear something that sounds amiss? Will you confront a false teaching or lovingly rebuke a sister in Christ when she has gone astray? 
And the last one, number six, can you say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I pray so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this lesson, for just reconfirming to us that it is by faith that we are saved and that it was your grace, your gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again that we might have life. We thank you so much that you loved us as we were still sinners, that you looked at us through your son's work on the cross. And Father, we give this day to you. We bring all the glory to you, Father. We thank you and we ask that you would continue to teach us as we share our lessons in our group. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.